God, thank you for another beautiful day, another day to just drink in your grace and to see your glory and everything that you have made and to gather together and praise your name and open up your word and see the beauty of Christ. I pray that as we look at this text together, just that our hearts would be spurred on to love you more and that we would be encouraged by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, and that you would guide us into truth. Um, So we give you thanks for this time in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark chapter 12, picking up in verse 28. So it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So back in verses 18 through 26 or 27, you have the, the Sadducees. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees had a debate about the resurrection. And uh, they dragged Jesus into this by um, trying to kind of stump him with a question. And Jesus answers that question well. And that inspires another religious teacher, a scribe, to jump in and ask Jesus this question, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus has often answered these kinds of like gotcha questions, right? The trick questions. We just saw the one where they present this really elaborate hypothetical situation with a man who gets married and... um, or a, a woman who gets married and her husbands keep dying. Uh, but why is this a trick question? Which commandment is the most important of all? Why, why would that be a kind of gotcha trick question? Uh, if you went up to a police officer and you asked him, which laws can I break? What would the answer be? None, right? So the question, which commandment is the greatest, is is kind of a silly trick question because does God think that any parts of his law are not relevant? No, if holiness is perfect adherence to God's law, then every commandment is of the utmost importance, Right? Uh, in our human system, we, we tend to say, well, certain things are definitely more important than others. And there is a sense in which that's true, right? 
Uh, if you go back to the Old Testament law and you look at the consequences for breaking different laws, you know, stealing your neighbor's cow didn't require you to be executed, but killing your neighbor did, right? Cold-blooded murder, the consequence was capital punishment, death, petty theft, the consequence was repayment with restitution, okay? And so there is a sense in which we can say something like, look, murder is worse than hate, but that's not how true righteousness before God works. That, that might be how man perceives what is good, but that's not how true righteousness before God works. In the eyes of God, all sin is infinitely egregious, no matter how small it might be in the eyes of man, okay? Um, this is why Jesus can say, well, you heard that it was said, don't kill, but I tell you, don't even hate, right? Because in the eyes of God, even something as awful as hate is uh, deeply offensive to him, as offensive as even murder. Does that make sense? So I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, in, in human systems that there isn't a necessary sort of division of the law into like more important and less important. This is why we have like misdemeanors and felonies. But in the eyes of God, all sin is infinitely egregious and holiness is perfect adherence to God's law, which makes every single commandment of the utmost importance. Now, whether the scribe sort of knew this or not, maybe isn't certain from the text, verses 32 and 33, like seem to suggest that he did get this, that, that like... He was curious what Jesus thought, but he did kind of have an answer because he says, you're right, teacher. You've said, you know, you've answered well. Um, but it's also possible that his response there is to kind of save face, right? If they're standing in front of a crowd and he asks this question and Jesus' answer is really good and this guy was going to kind of debate him, he's like, ooh, you know, well done. You know, I'm going to back off my question now. Um so how does Jesus answer the question without falling into the trap? Because Jesus doesn't say, hey, dum-dum, they're all important. He actually answers, the most important in verse 29 is, hear, O Israel. And then the second one in verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, yeah, summarizing. Summarizing all the laws, actually. Yeah, and I meant to uh, look that verse up. I didn't, I don't know why I didn't write it down. Uh, Matthew, uh, sorry. Yeah, Matthew 22, verse 40. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. All the law is summed up in these two things that Jesus commands, okay? Uh, actually, Really, it's, it's summed up in you shall, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Why? Why is that a summary of the whole law? That's exactly right. If you set your mind and your heart on keeping that commandment, out of keeping that commandment is going to flow all the other things. Right? Out of honoring God with everything that you think and you do and you have, you're then going to actually also love your neighbor because that's how God feels about your neighbor. 
So the second commandment naturally flows out of the first. If you love God, you're going to do everything he commands. And if you love God, you're also going to love what's important to him. And God loves people who are made in his image. I think you guys looked at that last week, right? Paying taxes to Caesar. Render to God what belongs to God. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Whose image is in man? God. Right? So God loves his image reflected in mankind. Therefore, he loves mankind and we will love man if we also love God. So the Lord is one quotation gives us some context here. This is actually really important. You might say like, well, why doesn't Jesus just start in verse 30? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Why does he include hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's not merely because this is a quotation from an Old Testament text. I think actually this is an important statement about the law. God is not divided. And therefore, since the law proceeds from God, you cannot divide the law, right? We can't say about God's character, oh, you know, his love is the most important thing. His justice is kind of second. We can't say about the law, you know, uh, taking care uh, not to lie is more important than, you know, uh, not honoring him with your money. It doesn't work like that. God is one. He cannot be, he himself cannot be divided into more important and less important. Therefore, the law that he gives cannot be divided that way either. Yeah. I was wondering, I'm sorry to come back to verse 28, but I was wondering what is the link between the rest and that, like, what happened in the scribe mind after Jesus' answer to the Pharisees about the resurrection to come to ask him this question? I I know, like, sometimes it doesn't have to be, you know, in a conversation, somebody, like, you finish something, you finish talking about something, and somebody just asks you a random question that has nothing to do with the first thing. Well, I think that's why I would say this is kind of a trick question, <clears throat> right? So, so in, in verses 18 through 27, Jesus is asked a really weird hypothetical trick question, right? Oh, Jesus, we got you. Like, we've been thinking about this riddle for a long time and we can't get to the bottom of it. What do you think about this? You're probably going to say the same thing we do, right? There can't be... Uh, there can't be like a resurrection because how would you get to the bottom of this situation, right? So, and, and the, then verse 28 says, seeing the scribe when he saw that Jesus answered them well. So look, Jesus is pretty good at this answering question thing. I wonder if he can answer my question, which again, I think is another trick question. If Jesus says, guys, the most important commandment is don't murder. Well, then what has he done to the law? Yeah, it's, he, a, it's a different guy. It's, yeah, not, connected. Different guy. it's not connected. Yeah. So I think he's watching the debate. He sees Jesus, in, you know, be very impressive in his answer. And he's like, I want to crack at a, at a hard question. Um, because I think we would be tempted to say something like, well, you know, the most important commandment is, yeah, don't, don't murder or don't make false images or something like that. Um, yeah. So I have a... I have a slightly different view, so I, I would agree that you know uh, every sin basically uh, condemns us and leads to eternal yeah. uh, punishment. But I would say that uh, this text and other things uh, teach like uh, 
uh, gradient of, of importance. So Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. So he's saying these are the greatest, which means the other ones are lesser. And then uh, the, the, <coughs> the scribe says uh, the two commandments that Christ cited are more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he's basically saying sacrificing, that's less important than loving God. He's not saying it's not important, but he's saying that's more important. So and then Jesus said that he answered wisely. And of course, in other passages, uh, I think it's David, he says, uh, uh, you know, you have desired more than sacrifices and burnt offerings. And then Jesus said to, um, to Pilate, the one who betrays me, he commits a greater sin uh, than you. He says greater sin. And so I would say that uh, there is a there is a gradient of sin that's going to be judged in different ways, uh, but they all lead to hell. Uh, but there is such a thing as, uh, you know, more important sins that are if you commit the sin against God in that way, uh, that's going to be judged more severely than another, another sin. And so that's, that's basically, you know, in French we say if you, if you, if you steal a, a, an egg, it's like stealing a, an ox. And that's to say that if you start to steal, you're going to steal more. Mm. Some people say, well, you know, it's like it's the same thing. You, 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 you stole, but still it's not, uh, it's not exactly the, the same guilt before God because one is more egregious than the other. Yes. And so that, that's, that's the nuance I would bring, I would say. And I would say that the, if, if, if he had said murder, they would say, well, no, you're wrong. You know, loving God is more important. So Jesus would have looked kind of foolish. Like, you don't need, you're kind of measuring on the manners. You missed this bigger thing. Right. So Jesus is right on the mark. He's saying, this is loving God. It's chief of all. And, and therefore, he, uh, you know. So it's kind of a nuance. That's how I see it. Yeah, and I, I, I don't, uh, I don't actually like disagree with you. This is a. It's good for us to talk about this and kind of tease this out because, you know, Paul will write that if you break, if you break the law at any point, you're guilty of breaking all of the law, right? So, what I'm saying is kind of that idea. Look, it's all important, and uh, Jesus ends up in a bit of a, a, a tough spot if he doesn't say it's all important. Right. That that's kind of what I'm getting at, and and here's what I mean when I'm here's what I'm trying to show you, is that the greater always includes the lesser, but the lesser does not always include the greater, right? So if you say this part of the law is the most important, you've excluded all of that. If you say in some way it's all important, then you've included this, and that's what I think Jesus is doing here. I, I agree with you though. I think there are, I think when you look at the Old Testament law, there are certain things that get greater consequences and there are certain things that get lesser consequences. So even in the eyes of God, there are some that are greater and there are some that are lesser, right? But when you summarize the law in this way, you get this. If you go this route, you exclude the rest. Does that kind of make sense? Um, so, I mean, and this answer is just perfect. It's brilliant, right? Because if you love God with all your heart, then you're not going to give bad sacrifices, right? Uh, if you love God with all of your mind, then you're not going to put idols ahead of him. And then flowing from that, you're going to love your neighbor, so you're not going to steal his donkey or lie to him or treat him unfairly, okay? So 
Uh, this is brilliant. But but let's 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 take this a little bit step further. Do you think anybody will be in hell for telling a lie? So I would actually disagree with you. I think that they will suffer the consequences of the lie because no deed will go without its proper judgment and consequence, punishment. But the reason why people are in hell is for one particular sin, the sin that leads to death, which is what? Unbelief. Unbelief. That's exactly right. So they failed in the greater which is unbelief. That's that's the problem, right? So again, people will be in hell partly because they lied, but they will be there primarily because Christ on the cross was crucified for the redemption of them out of that sin, and they did not believe. Does that make sense? Any other comments or questions on that? Well, I think by saying that you cannot like it's Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And and what one of the dangers with with thinking about this and not thinking clearly is we can begin to say, well, you know what? I just did this sin, and it's it's really not all that important, right? I all I did was I stole an egg. Like it's not that big a deal. But when you begin to justify your sin like that, what do you find? Eventually you do steal the cow right? You begin to be given over to your sin rather than be repentant for your sin. And so I, I agree there is, you know, there is some kind of system we could create that shows greater or lesser sins. But what we should think is, oh my goodness, in stealing the egg, I have deeply offended God who told me not to steal. And, and I'm out of sorts with him. So we'll, let's unpack this a little bit more. Um, Verses 29 through 30, this is a quotation from, anybody know? Deuteronomy 6. This is called, the Jews call this the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohim. I, I used to know it, but I don't remember it anyway. Anymore, sorry. So the, this original quotation from Deuteronomy, interestingly, only has heart, soul, and might. So I want to point this out. Um, you're not supposed to add to God's word, but who can? Jesus, right? He is God. So I don't think he didn't know the quotation here. Um, and, and maybe this is the result of what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So you got a weird thing going on here where... You've got the Gospels recorded for us in Greek, but Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic, and so there's some translation differences there. But it's kind of irrelevant. Jesus is God. So he's expounding on this text for us. And uh, what he's getting at is what? When he gives us these things, heart, soul, mind, and strength, what, what's, he, what's he referring to? Can you yeah, if Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God and he gives us these list, this list of, of four things, what, is he, what does he have in mind with those four things? All yeah, the totality of the human person, right? He's not left anything out. 
the heart is really the, the control center of the person. It's the, the CPU, if you will. It's the center of who they are. It's, it's the place from which all of their actions originate. The soul is the spiritual aspect of man. The mind is the thought life of man. The strength is the bodily capacity of man. You have, in, in these four things, brought together the totality of what it means to be a person. Um, so nothing is left out. And then uh, in, in this quotation as well, Jesus also is affirming that God is one, which is really problematic if you're not a Trinitarian, because when you get to John chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So if you read the Bible and you don't see that Jesus is equal with the Father, then uh, you have missed something. And yet Jesus also says God is one. Okay, verse 31, the second great commandment, I would say is, is actually equally as important as the first. And that's for this reason right here. Because you can't keep the second one without keeping the first one. And if you keep the first one, then you will keep the second one. Okay? So I, I get that Jesus puts it second. And, and that's because if you love man but you don't love God, then you're in big trouble. But if you love God, you will naturally then love man, right? Love your neighbor. I've heard also that it's because the fourth, uh, first four commandments and the ten commandments are about God, and the sixth commandments are about your neighbors. So he's kind of like summarizing. So. Yeah, this is called the two tables of the law. No. That they're broken down. There, there's some debate whether it's the first three or the first four and then the last six or seven. But yes, there's clearly two parts, right? Uh, no gods before me. Um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Those are all things that are uh, directed towards God, right? And then the, the second one, don't steal from your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't murder. That's directed more towards the the ethical community, the way that we treat one another. So yeah, and, and that's called the two tables of the law. That goes back to like ancient Jewish tradition that you had two stone tablets and on one of them were the ones directed towards God and on the other one were the ones directed towards man. Um, now, isn't this interesting? What, what does the man say uh, in verse 28? Which commandment? is the most important of all. How many commandments is he looking for? But how many does Jesus give? Two. So I think that this supports my point that you can't, you can't divide these things out. Jesus says the second is like it. It's, it's included in the first. So the man asks for one commandment, the one that's the most important of all, and Jesus really can't offer him only one commandment because these two commandments are so interconnected, they cannot be divided. So Jesus gives two commands in response to the scribe's request for one, but in essence, Jesus is giving one command. Love God and from that will flow love for others. Um, any, any other thoughts or questions on that?
sadly, the predominant sort of mainstream, we, we call them the mainline denominations. So like the United Methodists, the, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, they, they love the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're all about social justice issues and things like that. But they basically hate God. They, they've thrown out his word as authoritative for life. They, they don't, they, you know, they smear him by giving him weird pronouns and things like that. Um, so how well do you think they'll do at loving others when they don't have any love for God? Terrible, right? It, it doesn't go well. Okay, verse 31 is often abused in our self-centered culture. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody make this claim. From time to time, you'll see videos like this of preachers on YouTube where someone will say, look, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So really, you need to love yourself more. Do you think that's what Jesus has in mind? No, why not? Let's be honest here. What are we all really, really, really good at? Right? Loving ourselves. Um, yeah, exactly. Yes. And even like as small humans, that is the only thing we're good at is everything about us. As we grow older, yeah. the idea is to become less self-aware and more focused on that. But it's in our nature from when we're born to be focused on ourselves. Yep. Totally. And even something like you know, sometimes people will like commit suicide and you read their note and basically the note is like, I hate myself. That's an awful tragedy. Uh, I wish that that kind of thing would never happen. But in committing suicide, what are you doing? You're being selfish. You are loving yourself because you are choosing to end the pain, which is a self-centered, self-loving decision, right? So the the... The twisted thinking there is, I hate myself, but actually you're doing the action because you love yourself. Um, so Jesus does not have in mind that what you need to do in order to get better at loving your neighbor is learn to love yourself more. Actually, it's the complete opposite. The presupposition behind this command is that you already are brimming with love for yourself. You are already too good at loving yourself and you do not need to improve on your self-love. The ethic is actually that you need to learn to think about yourself less, think about God more, and then in thinking about God, you will be more concerned about what God is concerned about, which is his own glory and his creation. Okay, uh, verse 32, the scribe says to him, you're right, teacher. So this is amazing. What kind of formal education did Jesus have in the law? Nothing exceptional, right? Like every Jewish boy, he would have grown up practicing the Shema, you know, reciting these things, um, potentially reading the Torah in the local synagogue or something like that. But Jesus was not accepted into any rabbinical school. He was not a professional rabbi. What was he? He was a carpenter, right? And yet here... He proves himself by impressing the scribe to be a master of the law. Why should that not surprise us? That Jesus would be a master of the law. 
Yeah, he wrote the law, <laughs> right? Like he is its author. So the scribe, uh, you know, is impressed. He agrees that Jesus is really answered well. And then I think he kind of gives a reference to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a great psalm of repentance. I encourage you to know it. You know, we get that song, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Take not your uh, spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But in Psalm 51, verse 16, David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So in the Levitical law, sacrifices were very important, but they were never as important as a heart that was circumcised in love for God. So why does Jesus then in verse 34 say that this man is not far from the kingdom of God? How come this man isn't in? Yeah, you have a question? I don't go back. I only go wondering. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Verse what? 33? 32 and 33. Oh, well, okay. I'm not the original. I'm not like my husband, right? But in my uh, Bible study, I noticed one thing. Um, and, you know, last week we were, um, Jonas taught us about like one word is important. And I noticed that the word hour is super important. Um, there is actually, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong you and you will tell me, there is actually no non-believer that ever called God my or our God. And here, Jesus quoted, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But when the scribe, quote, he wants to quote the same thing, but actually he's not. He says, he, he is one and there is no one else beside him and to love him with all the hurt and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself much more than all the He does not say our again. He could have just quoted, yes, you were right, the Lord our God is so and so forth. Like for example, um, I think his name is Joas, you know the little king, the one the one that came to be king of Israel at eight. Yeah. And uh, so he was raised by his high priest. And, um, and and when you read it, it's that it states that I think it's in uh, Second King. He said, you see that during the life of this high priest, he did everything right that uh, to please the high priest. But you, you could think like God. But at the moment, he gives money to the Israelites to build the. The temple to, oh, not to build the temple, but to restore everything that was in the temple. And he says, actually, why didn't you say not using it right? Why didn't you use the money for your God? And he does not say our God or my God. And like David, always calling God my God. And you're the Christian, you're the believers. So no one that is not Christian ever called God our God or my God in the Bible. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So I'm kind of thinking, yeah, uh, that would answer your question. Like, he's not, he, he's not accepting God as a savior and his Um Yeah, that's interesting. I had not thought about that. Uh, I, I'm not positive. I agree with your premise that nobody in Scripture ever called God my God or our God without at least believing it, right? Thinking it in their mind. I mean, certainly the Jews were actually, they recited the Shema like every I'm day. I'm not saying like in life. I'm saying 
in the in scripture. So I, I've just not read it observing that phenomenon. You could be right. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you certainly could be right. I mean, it, it is true of the Jews that they, they wanted God to be at a distance from them. Um, you know, when, when they come out of slavery in Egypt, they tell Moses, you go up there and talk to him. Like, we don't want to get any closer, right? And, and then they say to God, we don't want you to be our king. We want Saul, right? Like, we want somebody between you and I. Um, so it could just be like a kind of respect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's very interesting. I think it's very interesting. Um, I, I think that's a cool observation. You are not far from means he's not in. This is not far. Yeah. So kind of answers the question, but it's still interesting. He says you are not far. It's like wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is what I what I wanted to talk about, and maybe this will tie in with what you're bringing up. Why does Jesus say this man's not far from the kingdom of God? Jesus is actually impressed. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, "You're not far." Didn't didn't this man get it right? Wasn't Jesus impressed? Why is this man not in the kingdom of God? He didn't ask the next question. The question he asked is, which is the greatest commandment? The next question is, how do I keep the commandment? He wasn't interested in necessarily keeping it. So he fell short. Because if he doesn't ask, how do I keep the commandment, then what does he think about himself? Yeah, that he can or he has, right? And we get this from Jews from time to time that come up to Jesus, right? One of the guys says, which is, in another gospel, one of the guys says, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, and what does the guy say in response? All these I have kept since my childhood. And Jesus says, well, you lack one thing, go sell all of your, your goods and give it to the poor. And the man goes away disappointed, right? So here's the problem. This man has not understood that the task before him, as summarized by Jesus, is not possible for man to do apart from grace. You cannot keep these commandments in your own power. And this man did not ask, how do I succeed in doing this? Um, And so that's why he's not in the kingdom of God. Because he doesn't understand that the only way that you can do this is by faith, through grace. That the work of Jesus in keeping these commands would be applied to you through faith. Um, You know, Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, this man does not have the faith that he needs. That's why he's not in the kingdom. All right, then no one dares to ask him any more questions. So improving himself a master of the law, being competent to summarize all of the law and the prophets in two simple concepts, there's no further intellectual testing to put Jesus through. All right, so then Jesus decides to put them through some intellectual testing. Verses 35 through 37 And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So now it's Jesus' turn to do the testing here. Um, let me mention a couple things before we kind of get into this text a little more fully. Notice that Jesus, where is he teaching? In the temple, openly, during the day, with lots of crowds around him. And this is important to remember because when we get to Mark chapter 14, verse 19, or sorry, verse 49, where, where is Jesus arrested? He's arrested in the dark, in the middle of night, right out in the garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested in secret. And, and this is just going to highlight the, the underhanded, sneaky, uh, unjust way that the Pharisees treated Jesus. So uh, I want you to notice one other wonderful statement about the inspiration of Scripture in verse 36. David, Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declares... So David declares, and that becomes scripture, but it was the Holy Spirit who declared through him. So David spoke the words of God as the Spirit of God spoke through him, which is essentially exactly what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says. That men carried along by the Spirit, wrote scripture, spoke scripture, etc. Okay, so the scribes, in searching the scriptures to understand the Messiah, they had succeeded in figuring out that uh, this, the Messiah would be the son of David. Um, you can see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, where God declares to David, I'll put a son on your throne, his kingdom will be forever. That's repeated in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. Um, but then you get this psalm written by David. Uh, it's Psalm 110. The whole psalm deals with this messianic savior. And I think if you look at that psalm and you also look at those passages, 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17, I think what you are getting from David in this psalm is kind of like a record of his conversation with God that we're told about in uh, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Um, the, the Greek here is uh, not as helpful as the original Hebrew um, because in Hebrew you've got a distinction between these two words Lord okay so verse 36 the Lord said to my Lord in Greek both of those words are the word kurios which is the Greek word for Lord but in Hebrew and, and you can actually see this if you want to go back to Psalm 110, verse 1. You can see it there in the text because your Bible will format the first word Lord in a unique way uh, where it does that, this little, this like mini caps thing like this. The first instance is that, whereas the second instance is this. And uh, does anybody know the difference between those two words when they're formatted like that in your English Bible? The first one is Yahweh. Yes. The second one is Adonai. Yes, exactly. 
Okay. So uh, this is a this is a very interesting, very cryptic um, psalm where you could translate it this way: Yahweh said to Adonai, "Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet." Okay. Um, I can double check real quick. I'm 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 fairly certain that I did look at this, but I can pull it up again to be sure. Okay, so that could be just a formatting difference. Not every Bible does this. The ESV I know does this. Um, but I'm like 99% sure, but I'll double check here. Uh, yeah, yeah. The first one is Yahweh. The second one is Adonai. Looking at the Hebrew. So, um, okay, so here's the problem. David refers to the Messiah as Lord. Why is that a problem? It's a problem for them because they thought he was just a man. So yeah, they thought he was just a man. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, they didn't understand that the Messiah would be divine. Right? But there's another problem here, which is that you cannot have a uh, progeny that surpasses the progenitor. So you cannot have a descendant who is greater than the patriarch. This is a problem. David is the patriarchal head of his dynasty. And it would be improper for him to see someone who comes from his seed, from his line, as greater than him. Because the origin is the greatest. Does that make sense? So David giving honor to somebody who came after him is problematic. It's the same kind of thing that John says. He who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. Right? This is the same idea. The Messiah is greater than David because actually David gets his dynasty from the Messiah. Does that make sense? Okay. And then we can come back to the, the other thing that Jonas was mentioning, which is that um, where does this Davidic Messiah end up? Seated where? At the right hand of Yahweh, right? This is a throne far beyond the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. This is a, a heavenly image here, okay? So if this psalm has in mind a heavenly throne room, then uh, again, this is a divine Messiah, not merely human. Uh, so... What kind of answer do the do these very educated Jews have for Jesus at this point? Nothing, right? They're totally stumped. They do not understand how the one who descends from David can ultimately be greater than David. Remind us what Psalm this is in? Yeah, Psalm one ten. 
Um, which, uh, if, if you want to spend some time thinking about it, actually the opening chapter of Hebrews also deals with this psalm. Uh, so you could look at the psalm and what Jesus says here in the first chapter of Hebrews. It's kind of fascinating. Basically, the first chapter of Hebrews gives an answer to this question that the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't give. Okay. And then verse 37, Mark answers, or Mark mentions that uh, the great throng heard him gladly. Now, I think this is also really important. I think it creates kind of an inclusio with verse 35. So an inclusio is kind of like bookends. Where is Jesus teaching? In the temple, publicly. Who is watching him? A great throng. In other words, who supports Jesus? All the common folk, right? The regular people. Um, which again, I think is going to highlight how the Pharisees have to work in this really underhanded way to capture him and, and um, put him on trial. And I think it's also going to expose the fickle nature of the crowds. Because right now they love him. And very soon, what will they be yelling? Crucify him, right? There might also be a little bit of like kind of class warfare here. This is very typical. You have these powerful, wealthy, educated elites. And what do people in that position tend to do concerning the common folk? Look down their noses at them, despise them, think that they're stupid. And so there might be a little bit of a like, the crowds are like, oh, this guy, he's, he's making these people look like idiots, right? There might be some of this kind of like, here's a common man from Nazareth, and he's crushing these elite, educated, powerful guys with his arguments. And there's some like, let's get the popcorn and just watch the show. All right, versus uh, any other comments on, on that section? 35 to 37. To bounce back on what you, you've been uh, saying, right? It looks like uh, Jesus points out that he is God, and therefore you should love me. Right? Oh, that's good. So That's good. I love right? that. I mean, especially uh, as in the Greek, he says, curios, curios. This, this is the same essence, so you should love me. Yeah. And it's like, wow. Yeah, that's, that's really what good. what it means, but they reject him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. I like it. Thank you for sharing that. Is there anything also that he says to the scribe, you know, far from, from the kingdom of God, and then he attacks the scribes directly. Right. Yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, the text That's is good. like, this, this is just a sermon. The common people heard him gladly. Yeah. When he's preaching, teaching, he doesn't use elaborate language or, you know, fancy words that half the crowd doesn't know. Or they love to share and he looks really smart. Like some, some teachers who got into scandals lately, you know, they, they just like, they speak in a way that they look really smart, but yeah. it's not so clear what they're saying. Right. They heard him, they understood. He is not trying to, you know, be clever. Although he says things that are amazing, right? He's yeah. still, they hear, they understand, and they are, they are, they are blessed. And, and the common people, so everyone is, and yet the educated people are amazed. Yeah. So this this way of teaching is just summarized in a way that's uh, fascinating. There. That's good. I like that. That that reminds me sort of what Paul says, right? Is it in First Corinthians where he says, "When I came to you, I didn't come with word like fancy arguments and plausible words and powerful. Like I came with the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit." 
not not with these you know impressive arguments. Okay, um, we're kind of running out of time here, so let's let's just keep cruising. We can probably get through it. Uh, verse thirty-eight. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Um, so the religious elites, they had the, this power and this prestige but I, I think most people could see through it, right? I, I think it's kind of obvious that the common folk understood that these religious elites were, were sort of getting wealthy and powerful on the backs of the common people. Jesus warns them of these uh, scribes, but I think their hypocrisy was probably obvious to most people. Um, you know, a, just a really good example of this is if you look at John 9, Jesus heals a blind man there and how do the religious leaders respond to that they're just absolutely incensed they are deeply offended and why is that because it happens on the Sabbath and I think if you're a common folk and you're watching this man Jesus heal a blind man who was born blind from birth on the Sabbath and you're listening to these stuffy religious people say this is wrong this shouldn't have happened you're going to see through that, that hypocritical, pharisaical approach, right? You're going to be like, I think I'm on this guy's team. Like, he's making people blind see. Like, I, I want to be associated with him. These guys are a little out there if they think that this is bad. Or another picture is where Jesus casts out the demons and the Pharisees say, by, by Satan, he's casting out demons, right? This is the power of Beelzebul at work. I think most people are like, dude, no way. That's not how this works. So what we have here is just a picture of religious devotion gone wrong. I mean, in one sense, we do have to like say that the scribes and the Pharisees were impressive because they did care about the law. But they didn't care about the law as a means to approach God. They cared about the law as a means to see themselves righteously. So the, the scribes are not seeking to honor and glorify God. They're seeking their own honor and glory. Like Jesus says, they're whitewashed tombs. That's Matthew 23, 27. I mean, if you want some really scathing rebuke for the scribes and the Pharisees, go read Matthew chapter 23. He's got a long list of beefs that he has with them. But these are people that on the outside look impressive, but they're full of rot on the inside. All right, the widow's offering. In Jesus, verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So maybe you've already uh, seen this, but like if this is the temple ground right here. The, uh, the court of the Gentiles where just about everybody could go. 
out there you had these these like giving boxes that were kind of central in the in the courtyard there and they looked like they looked like this they were like a square that would collect the money with kind of like a trumpet shape so you couldn't easily like you know kids are prone to do reach your hand down there and help yourself to some of those coins and as you would drop the money in there it would make some noise right um, the more change you're dropping in there the more jingling and tinkling it's going to make it would be pretty obvious to people standing around when you just dropped two little copper pennies in there and copper is a soft metal so it's it's not going to ring as loud um and this is right in the middle of the courtyard right so jesus can sit down and he can just watch people come and give their money and and uh, if you're the kind of person that likes to make a show of your generosity, well, this is the spot, right? And at another place, Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who like to play the trumpet before they go and give their offering, their financial contribution. Um, because, you know, you're sitting around in a courtyard, somebody blows a trumpet, you're going to look, and then they get to walk up and put their giant money sacks in the hole. And everybody gets to go, ooh, ah, look at them. And um, Jesus doesn't support that kind of self-righteousness. Instead, he supports, you know, a quiet, humble faithfulness to God. And I would say this is a lesson uh, really on faith and trust. It's not a lesson in, in giving necessarily. This woman is displaying confidence in God. God is really not impressed by the amount of money we give him. What is he impressed by what we give him? What? What's that? Yeah, our heart, right? What impresses God is the amount of willingness that we have to trust him. And we see this with Jesus in the Gospels again and again. The Syrophoenician lady, remember her? Uh, she asks him for some healing and he says, no, I'm here for Israel. And she says, well, even the dogs look up the crumbs. And he says, woman, basically I'm impressed by your faith. Right? I'm impressed by your willingness to trust me. So here's the, the thing about the giving of the money here is these people could come in and parade and give their big sacks of money to Jesus and keep what? Well, I would actually say their heart. Right? And you're right. They probably are keeping most of what they have. But what you can't see them doing is internal. It's spiritual. Right? Ooh, I give this money, but I keep for myself my heart. God doesn't get that. Whereas the widow, in giving all she has, verse 44, shows that she is surrendering complete dependence to God. So, um, man, here's something else that's kind of interesting is what happens to this woman? We don't know. We're never told. We're not told how this woman fares with no money. We're not told how she goes home and manages to get some food that day or get some food the next day. Uh, but you know what? Her story is irrelevant. And the reason is because the point here is for us to trust Jesus, right? God cares for the birds, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. 
And so God cares infinitely more for this woman who is stamped with his image. Maybe she went away and even starved. That's possible. We don't know. But she was still safe in God's hands, even with that kind of follow-up. Now, she probably didn't. I, I believe she was probably well cared for and honored by God. She ends up in the text as a kind of hero, opposite the scribes as sort of the villains. Um, but the story is not about the woman. The story is, what is, is about what is good. And what is good is to trust God with all of your heart. Right? Here's a woman doing what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. In doing that, she gives everything over to him. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you, uh, if you uh, agree with that, but I, I heard MacArthur explain uh, in the sermon that this passage is kind of a, an illustration of what happens with the prosperity gospel. So you have the Pharisees describes everything. They, they are saying you should give like a money in a way that's not correct. So the text, uh, right? He just rebuked uh, the religious folks, and then he says um, that the rich are giving a ton. But then it says, um, if I can find it, yeah, verse forty. Who devour widows' houses? Right. So the widows, they don't only have the husband working to provide the income. Yeah. And in the book of First uh, Timothy, it says that the congregation was actually supposed to support financially the widows. So they're not yeah. supposed to give money. They're supposed to receive money right. if they can no longer work. And the husband is dead, provided the family cannot help. Uh, and so right here, we have the rich people coming, and they get all the praise and the long prayers and all of this. And then the widow, who is really not supposed to be uh, giving that much because she doesn't have enough to buy her own food. Uh, she's really devoured with this teaching that even the two cones she has, you know, she has nothing else, but she uh, has to give it. And they are abusing the widow. And uh, it's awful. And today you have the same thing. People go all over the Africa. People have nothing. Yeah. They come with their jet and they say, you have to give money. God is going to give you more. You have yeah. eternal life. And it's horrible. When, when, when I was in uh, Kenya, I actually encountered multiple people like that. Um, who basically said, you know, I, I listen to Joel Osteen and, and I know that if I just, if I give money to these people that God will bless me. I'm just, I'm just waiting for that blessing. And it's horrible. It is. I mean, it's, it's horrible. Like people everywhere yeah. like this talk those yeah. lies and it, they are just uh, abused. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, and it's not to say that this lady didn't have, you know, a heart. She, she mostly had, I mean, who knows, but in the text it looks like yeah. a contrast. Yeah. Because you could have someone who is just not having faith in Christ who even gives everything and it's like worse. They have yeah. nothing spiritually, physically. But it looks like in this context it's just a, kind of a one-on-one example of the prosperity gospel today where people are just abused in ways yeah. that are horrible. Really. Yeah, I think that's a great application. That's a great application. Um, also, uh, so this, uh, this passage will be like uh, two adjectives. So, like he's first saying, don't give out of your superfood. Don't give out, out, out of your extra. You should give with all your hurt. And at the same time, it's a um, it's, um, judgment against the scribe that uh, that said to the to the widows that they should give more than they they, they have. Yeah, so yeah. It's like, well, yeah. It's two two teachings in one. Totally. I think Jesus does that a lot, where he's got lots of different angles that you can look at. That there's lots of implications you can draw. I need to wrap us up for time, so let me just pray. 
God, again, we thank you for your word, and I pray that uh, we would be committed to this great commandment and the second, which is like it, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And I thank you that that, that is uh, an actual possibility for us because of the grace we receive from Jesus and the power of the Spirit dwelling inside of us. So lead us and guide us in that, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.